0: So I just, I want the computer to understand the threat of violence, because it doesn't. It's just like, oopie, you know? And it's like, it, I feel like if the computer knew that it was in danger of being put in the microwave or something, it would maybe, you know, have some sort of sense of self-preservation. Um, I also have anger issues. Who doesn't? Digressive obscenity. Shit, what was I talking about? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Digressive Obscenity, or Will Wheaton Likes My Pants. The podcast my guest today is david alan mack david start us off right who are you and what do you do Tell me about you.
1: hi i'm a new york times best-selling author i've also written for television comic books internet video games newspapers pornography pretty much you name it um will wheaton likes your pants loves them love wow. cannot get enough of them that's it's- high praise I mean, I can't remember the last time I heard him praise somebody's pants. At least not a man's pants. I was dressed as a woman. Okay, now it all comes together. Okay, alright, I didn't want to... I mean, once we get into the whole cross-dressing category, now I start to see the connection. I feel like cross-dressing is is a, a label or a lifestyle.
0: This was more just like, today I'm dressing as a woman, I got some nice pants on. I see. Yeah.
1: So take that as a... You it wasn't know, even I mean, really a fashion choice. It was more of a target of
0: opportunity. You know, it's it's that they always seem to have a lot more comfort when it's hot out.
1: And I'm like, you know what? Well, they get to wear skirts, but we can wear kilts. We can wear kilts. Although if you don't actually have Scottish ancestry, I'm told that can rebound.
0: Yes. I mean, I'm half Irish, half British, which is not the same as being Scottish. Not the same. At all. Um, but I'm I think that I, you payable.
1: would think that the Irish part would allow you to wear a kilt or something. <laughs> You know, I
0: feel like the only people that would have a problem with that would be the Scots. The true Scots, yes. Yeah, which? Like,
1: my father-in-law might get his, you know, uh, kilt in a twist. Oh, wow. Does he have a, a gl- glazed? He's got, he's got, like, the, the whole family crest thing, and nice. he knows his tartan pattern. and Nice! Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, he's serious. He knows, he knows his stuff.
0: Okay, so I shouldn't wear the kilt around him. Yeah, but there's Scots. very little risk of that, so. Okay, okay. good. He's, right.
1: he's way far away from here.
0: So I'm clear with that, then. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you're in the clear. Okay, good. Thank you. Okay. Yep. Hey, just,
1: um, you know, heads up.
0: Josh. Excellent. Yeah, no, it's, it's better to know that than to not. Um, okay, so moving on to the questions.
1: Questions. Stop asking me questions. Um, what is your first memory of me? My first memory of you. I met you through a, a mutual friend, Alan Kistler. hmm We were shooting parody commercials in the style of political ads yes, for the roast of star trek author and politician robert greenberger mm-hmm. and i needed somebody who could basically be a gigantic fearsome lummox who would destroy or seem to destroy a boxed high definition television to the horror of its uh, poor beleaguered owner yes and uh you were recommended by Alan, and I, I met you on the day of the shoot, which happened to be one of the hottest days of uh, a couple of years ago. Yeah. Uh, really hot Three summer. Digits. Di- yeah. Yeah, it was like 101 degrees out there, and uh, we went out, it was me and you and your co-star Jess, from- Jess,
0: Jess Howell. Jess yeah. Howell,
1: who co-starred with you in uh, a, a webcast series. Yes, you did. indeed, on am Fisher. Right? So, I remember meeting you and just- immediately thinking, holy shit this guy's big! Look at the size of this guy! This is fantastic! And then of course, you know, you lift this box which of course is actually empty except for the styrofoam but you do this great roar and we did multiple takes of you throwing it into like the big puddle and stomping on it and dancing on it and it was a, you, you had really terrific energy And uh, you were a real sport Especially considering the heat And the time it took to shoot What should have been a, a quick in-out Of course uh, But uh, I remember thinking Wow, this, this guy's fun And uh, <laughs> big, very big
0: Yeah that's, Big! That's big! Been, it's been debated Yes um, But I think I'm going to acquiesce Yes, I am pretty tall What is your favorite moment or episode
1: of The Simpsons? The Simpsons You know, I always feel like I haven't watched The Simpsons in years and that I I don't know the series, and yet at the same time, I feel like I've seen more of it than I think I have. Of course. I know this happened to me with South Park. Mm -hmm. Simpsons, ah... The problem is it's it's not an actual episode. I think it's The Simpsons movie is the last thing I actually remember watching. And I remember mm-hmm. loving it. Yeah. To this day, I walk around, you know, mumbling, Spider-Pig, Spider-Pig <laughs> does whatever a Spider-Pig does. And uh, I just, I can't get enough of that movie and it's just perfect absurdity. So Absolutely,
0: yeah.
1: Although it doesn't really count as an episode and it's kind of a cheat, I'll have to say The Simpsons movie. You know, it fits in though. Because like right after the movie, they changed the
0: intro. Instead of the normal thing Like basically they're going Through the town And there's huge chunks Of broken glass
1: everywhere Oh that's awesome Yeah and it's, You know <laughs> They
0: tie it into it But yeah I enjoy that And I think the That's um, terrific the, uh, the, the Inuit woman Showed up again at one point On a street corner And and someone was like Who is that And Homer's like Oh that's my therapist <laughs> And it was Yeah But as, you know, as as long as they You know the, It ties in You know That's the important thing Just so I'm, I'm going to go time. with
1: Simpsons movie And sure. whatever Sort of segues off of it Absolutely What are you listening to Right now Listening to the dulcet tones of your voice. Why, thank you. Musically, before I came in uh, yes. to record today, I was sitting out uh, in the park and mm-hmm. I was actually listening to the Beatles. I was listening to uh, classic stuff, the 62 through 66 Spark uh, greatest, greatest hits. Yeah, I mean, I was digging out to, uh, let's see, Paperback Writer, mm-hmm. uh, I Want to Drive Your Car. Uh, Day Tripper, Mm -hmm. stuff like that. And then uh, before that I was, uh, you know, kind of just chilling to the Beastie Boys Mm -hmm. Listening to uh, the Paul's Boutique LP. Excellent. Yeah.
0: Actually, Paperback Writer was the first music video that I ever saw on MTV2 Mm
1: -hmm.
0: that for some reason my mind didn't put this together that they had music videos back then. It had music so, videos? There's a music video for paperback writer. Get out of here. They're running around a garden and there's a bust and they're popping in and out. Yeah, it's an it's a legitimate like music video for paperback writer. Wow. And I did not know that was the case. I, I always thought that like music videos are like, you know, from nineteen eighty one on, like right. when MTV came out. But apparently they had these things back then.
1: I guess they were probably aired as part of Variety shows. I think that maybe they Possibly. would sometimes be used as filler. Yeah. On like Late Night TV or Variety TV. Or they, maybe it was in one of their movies. It could have been used in one of the movies. It could have been yeah. an excerpt from, you know, one of those pictures like Yellow Submarine or yeah. Hard Day's Night yeah. or something like that.
0: But it blew my mind that wow. it's like, wow, these guys, music videos existed then, too.
1: But I remember, you know, although I was not a big fan of, let's say, Duran Duran, yeah. their videos were really arresting, and of course that's because... <clears throat> They were put together by director Russell Mulcahy, Mm -hmm. who later went on to do the film Highlander, among other pictures. Nice. And you can see, when you watch a movie like Highlander, elements of the visual style that he developed while putting together these really intense and and, uh, really well-choreographed videos for bands like Duran Duran.
0: Nice. Nice. So, that's a good place to start I mean you're basically making a short film and you just have you have the budget to do it David Fincher before he was all oh, yeah yeah he did uh what's it Janie's got
1: a gun right which is a terrific video yeah it's a very great, cinematic yeah. it looks like it, it looks, looks like a
0: Fincher movie it, it looks
1: like <laughs> the the video is promoting a movie of some kind then exactly. you find out that it's just made for the video. Yeah. Which, which, which blew my mind because the production value was so high and there was the crane shot oh, the crane coming shots, up from behind yeah. like the Citizen Kane fence and you got all the police lights. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And for oh, some yeah. reason,
0: even though that was such a really rich house, unless I'm remembering this wrong, it seemed as if the railroad tracks where they found Janie's dad was right next to their house. Which... Maybe he con- was a railroad baron. Uh, that makes sense. Or had an ancestor who was. Okay. Or just, you know, like Maybe they got the mansion on the cheap and they were kind of like faux rich. Faux rich, exactly. And they were kind of like, you know. They're the nouveau riche, but they don't actually have the taste or the connection. Exactly. Like, if this was any other director, I'd be like, yeah, that's too deep. But it's like, good lord, we're future. exploring
1: the subtext of <laughs> Janie's Got a Gun, the music
0: video. This is just the beginning. Yeah. Okay. Next question What is your favorite part of Janie's Got a Gun?
1: No, I'm kidding. Um,
0: <laughs> well, um, that was a
1: really <laughs> prescient question. <laughs> what are you reading right now? Ah, reading right now. I'm sort of between reads at the moment. I've got a bunch of stuff in the waiting-to-be-read pile. I'd imagine so. I, uh, I've been working on some new book proposals and getting nice. some out to collaborators, some out to uh, my my agent for feedback. In the to-be-read pile, I've got a couple of books by Richard Kadri. I have Kill the Dead mm-hmm. and Aloha from Hell, which are part of his Sandman Slim series. Okay. I also have... A book that I'm really looking forward to opening, it's uh, called, I believe it's, what is it, An Unfortunate Woman, I think is the name, uh, is the title. Mm -hmm. It's by Richard Braudigan. It's a manuscript that he wrote before he committed suicide back in 84. The book was published posthumously not Mm -hmm. long ago. I was unaware of it. Broudigan is my favorite author, has been since I was a teenager. I thought I owned all of his novels that were in print. And then recently, while looking up, like, first editions and uh, looking for some of his more obscure, out-of-print poetry, mm-hmm. I stumbled across this book on Amazon and realized that it was a Browdigan novel that I had never read. Uh, my wife got it for me for my birthday recently. Nice. And uh, I haven't had a chance to open it yet, but I, uh, I'm i trying to find, like, a block of time. This week might be that, that time, because mm-hmm. I'm... I'm sort of at that point where I've done all I can do on a number of different projects. I'm waiting for feedback. So I'm in a very rare lull where I'm actually not on deadline and I'm not writing anything specifically this week. Mm -hmm. This week might be a good time to just kick back, you know, sit in an air-conditioned room, put on some music, pour a glass of scotch, and break into some new again. Sure. Uh, Because, I mean, I've been... Reading again for years and years since I was about maybe fifteen or sixteen. Wow. First novel of his that I read was called *In Watermelon Sugar*, and it's this sort of weird fantasy type thing where the sun shines a different color depending on the day of the week, and watermelon seeds planted under like you know a blue sun will grow blue watermelons, under an orange sun will grow orange watermelons, and so Makes on. Sense. And de- depending on the color, it changes the quality of the watermelon, the flavor, the magical properties, the this, the that. There are all these sort of weird kind of bohemian-type characters interacting, and the best part about it, the whole thing is written in first person, Mm -hmm. present tense, from the point of a narrator who doesn't have a regular name. And there's a whole chapter, and sometimes chapters are just a paragraph long, sometimes they go on for a few pages, but he has a whole chapter about, I am one of those people who does not have a regular name. Nice. And it gets very poetic. He says, you know, the sound of rain on your rooftop, that is my name. You know, you were thinking of a friend, and then that friend calls, that is my name. So it's a whole series of these very beautiful little poetic things that sort of give you a a sense of the poetic nature of the narrator's soul. And so I read this first book, uh, it wasn't his first book, but it was the first one of his that I read, and I fell in love with his style. And then I just, you know, after I got out of uh, high school and out of college, I just sort of went on a mission to collect all of Broudigan's novels. Yeah. And then I also got some of his out of print poetry. And I have like a whole shelf of like Broudigan books. But what I love about Broudigan as a writer is that he has a talent for anthropomorphizing everyday things in unexpected ways. He just has a, a really, or he had a, a, a tremendous gift with characterizing things like a meat axe wind is how he describes like a cold, frigid wind at one point. I nice. just love the sound of it. Because you get this image of frozen meat being cleaved, and you sort of see this cold, unforgiving blade, and then suddenly you realize that's what the wind... The wind is a cold, unforgiving blade. Yeah. But he sums it up in just a few words. A meat-axe wind. I love a good metaphor. Like, he, I love a good... like. He's just brilliant with it. And he was one of the most gifted... He was considered one of the last beat authors. He was part of the beat movement. Okay. Um, but he remains my enduring favorite what's really curious to some people though is that my writing style has nothing to do with his like you would never (laughs) think that you read something of mine and think oh this guy must read a lot of (laughs) brought no i mean my style and brought could not be more different Mm -hmm. at least in my opinion and uh but i love to read his stuff i think maybe it's a case of an artist loves something that they don't do Yeah. It's because I don't do that. I don't write the way he does. And sometimes I almost wish that I do, but then I realize that's not me. Yeah. That's him. And I love what he does. But that's not what I do, and yeah. I'm
0: okay with that. Absolutely, because I mean, if you if you sit down and say, okay, write like broad again, write like broad again, write like Broadigan, it's gonna, it's not gonna, it's gonna, gonna, f- it's, gonna yeah. s-
1: it's gonna be like a pastiche.
0: Exactly, I've and then it's write like, like me, why is what, why is this happening here? This and I wonder if
1: musicians anymore. are like that, where a musician maybe loves something that they don't do, like for instance, a rock musician who, in his own time hmm. or her own time. Loves jazz, Mm -hmm. you know, or maybe, you know, has a thing for, uh, you know, old-time big band music. It's not what they play, it's not what they do, but if they're looking to, you know, listen to something from time to time, maybe, you know, they're into something that doesn't necessarily overlap with what they do, but they take joy in it all the same.
0: Yeah, sure, and, you know, you might find something popping up, like a, like a, a, a choral arrangement might be like, why does that sound like Prince in a Nine Inch Nails album? Right. Or something. And it's because, hey, it turns out, Reznor really likes Prince. And it's like, hey, I'm going to put a Prince harmony on here. What are you right. watching right now, if anything?
1: Ah, oh, what am I watching? I'm watching a lot of stuff on Netflix. For some reason, I'm on like, this whole classic television kick lately. Mm-hmm. I'm watching uh, Mission Impossible Season 2 from okay. the 60s. Yeah. I'm watching uh, Rockford Files from the 70s. Very nice. Twilight Zone, the classic series from 59 through 63. Uh, and I'm just sort of jumping back and forth, scattershot, you know, all over the place. I'm not watching Twilight Zone in order because it doesn't need to be. It's an exactly. anthology show. Yeah. Whereas Mission Impossible and Rockford Files, I've been making a point of watching them in uh, broadcast order, in sequence. Yeah,
0: because they have uh, they have on little little callbacks. Yeah, yeah.
1: Not much. I didn't do much in the way of serialized story, but what they had were callbacks of characters. They occasionally will reference a past episode, but not often. It was really before serialized storytelling. Uh, in nighttime dramatic television became common. That didn't actually take root in American television until uh, the 80s with shows like Hill Street Blues and St. Elsewhere Mm -hmm. um, and stuff like that. It was common in daytime television, you know, daytime serials, um, just because of the nature of the programming. But in terms of serious nighttime dramatic primetime programming, uh, that type of serialized storytelling really didn't emerge until uh, Hill Street Blues
0: now, didn't there? Wasn't there some sort of like a an
1: organization in Mission Impossible, the Syndicate or something? And they I, were like the big bad guys. I don't remember. Maybe, maybe they were established later. I'm only about maybe midway through season two at this point. Okay. And it could be that there is something like that that gets established later on. Yeah. I, I mean, have. I've not. I've not thing. yet encountered it. Like I, the only organization I've encountered are the good guys, the IMF, the yeah. Impossible Missions Force. Although he's got. Well, you know, here's one of those things that always baffles me as I'm watching Mission Impossible. First, you've got the guy who uh, later goes on to play district attorney uh, uh, on Law & Order. Uh, Stephen Schiff, I think is his name. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter. you got one guy who runs the show in season one, and then you got Peter Graves comes in starting in season two. Mm-hmm. And they get their orders, whatever, by going to these sort of weird, out-of-the-way places. And they find a tape cassette taped to the back of a painting, or it's inside of, like, a dark room, or it's here, whatever, and they play back their orders, and it's, you know, dispose of this in the usual manner. They drop it in a pit of acid, they throw it in a furnace, it yeah. self-destructs. Now, this is all well and good, except tell me this. How do they communicate to Peter Graves that there's a message waiting for him? And how do they tell him where it is? And is that mode of communication secure? What if somebody intercepted that mode of communication and got to his message ahead of him? Maybe,
0: this is off the top of my head, they may have assigned dead drops. That's what I'm thinking, it's like a dead drop. It had to be, because it's like, you know, who would randomly, on the other hand, like, you know, what if some dude is like, oh, I love this painting. What's this taped to the back of the painting? You know, some random dude is like, uh maybe right. I shouldn't have listened to this right but yeah there has to be some sort of establishment maybe because, yeah I
1: mean it's probably the thing is as far as I know, I'm halfway into season two and they've never established how he knows where to go the to, actual or, or you know logistics how, of it the yeah. actual logistics of it and I would be curious to know like if it's a series of regular dead drops because he I haven't seen him go back. To the same place more than once. Yeah. So the dead drop always seems to change. Well, how do they tell them where it is if it's always changing? If it's a different one every single freaking time?
0: It might be some sort of like a like a you know, code, some sort of code. new some paper. sort of code, guys. Like every Wednesday, you know, every third Wednesday, you change check the this paper. Letter. Exactly. Check the paper for this for and this I mean, personal
1: ad, and you know. And see,
0: this is something that like viewers of today would be like. Well, this is. Th- hang on, hang on, hang on. But how does he know then, where to go?
1: Exactly. Yeah. Back then, they just roll with it. But of course, this. Yeah. W- this reminds me of something that Grant Morrison uh, said about a child can watch a Disney movie Mm -hmm. and yet understands that in real life crabs don't sing and dance but a grown up picks up a comic book (laughs) and says wait a minute how does Superman's heat vision work? Wait a minute who inflates the tires on the Batmobile? To which Grant Morrison replies it's a fucking comic book! Maybe that's what really I just need to do with Mission Impossible which is he just knows. Somehow he knows. He knows where to go. He gets the message. Really, does it matter? If it's something that really,
0: really is, like, gnawing at you, you know there's got to be a Wikipedia entry, or there's got to be, a like, fan a fan fic. verse it that's... Probably
1: a fanfic, or yeah. a fanfic or something. You never know. But, I mean, it's it, just it one of those interesting. Things.
0: And, like, there were questions about that. Who does inflate the tires on the Batmobile? And then they were like, oh, this mute mechanic. Yeah. And it's like, okay, fine. There was actually, there's a story in, um that came out a while ago, and I read it when I was a kid, and it's a bunch of little short stories just in the world of Batman, and there's three hardcover books that I actually I actually just repurchased, but one of them is called Neutral Ground, and it basically addresses where do all these, these elaborate villains, where do they get their costumes from? <laughs> and so you have this guy, first person, he's basically a tailor, and a man just left, and he was very, you know, he, he was very insistent that there were 57 question marks. 57 question marks, There had to be 57 question marks on only 57. Last time there were 56, he was very unhappy, <laughs> paid, and left. He had basically, and he was basically, dis- like, he never saying anybody's names, but it's like, you Clearly know, the Riddler. Clearly the Riddler. And then, like, in one of them, he was basically, dis- you know, talking about how the man's going to show up, uh, the, you know, the the black-haired man, very serious, he's gonna need, uh, specifically, basically describing Bruce Wayne, and then, um, at the very end, it's like, um, okay, well, back to work, you know, lunch is over, because, um, I never like it when this next guy comes in, so he's always smiling, but... The um, clown. Yeah, exactly, and it's like, and it's this kind of cool, like, well, yeah, who does make these random question mark outfits, you know? And this is, you know, this is before, you know, Lucius Fox was like, well, you know... I'll make them, of course, but you have to wonder these things like that. And then they did have a little nod to that in Dark Knight when it was like, all those clothes are custom made, yeah. you know, with the Joker, oh, so, so it's yeah, like... It's, oh, yeah,
1: yeah, it's, yeah. So it's, it's, like, all, it's all best book tailoring. Yeah,
0: exactly, which is, I don't know, I, I kind of like that, that they kind of nodded to that, but at the same time, it's like, you know, it's a comic book, just sit back. You just know? roll with it. Yeah.
1: Have you ever broken a bone? Yeah. Yeah, I have. I uh, broke the bones in my left wrist. Sliding on grass while playing softball in Central Park. See, this is why no one should ever
0: play sports. <laughs> this is a personal feeling. I mean, I don't know. I got off sports. easy. My, my
1: brother broke his uh, clavicle playing ah, football in uh, high school. Jesus. Yeah. Ah, that was a no bear. One sh- no one should play sports. You know, so... I've had damage to my hip and my neck. I got hurt in a car accident many years ago when I was 21. I got messed up real bad.
0: While playing sports in the car? No,
1: not while playing sports. Okay,
0: because I was going to try and just keep (laughs) something. I was just kind (laughs) of sitting
1: there. And we got T-boned at an intersection. uh, After that, I spent, you know, it was right before my senior year of college, so I got to spend, like, the first half of my senior year of college Going to classes half the time, and the other half the time I was in chiropractic and physical therapy learning how to walk and stand upright again, and my back was just a total disaster for about six, seven months. Hmm. So that was fun. Uh, Do you collect anything intentionally? Well, as I said before, I collect Browdigan novels (laughs) and also Browdigan books of poetry. And over the last few years, after I had what I can only describe as a benign psychological break, mm-hmm. I apparently have begun collecting a variety of bunny memorabilia. <laughs> uh, I have you know, little ceramic bunnies. I've got stuffed bunnies. I've got uh, bunny calendars. I've got uh, bunny dishware. I've got uh-huh. bunny bowls, uh, bunny glasses. Basically, I've got a- all kinds of stuff with bunnies on them. Wow. Which is funny because my fans, you know, uh, after my first few books, which included Death and Destruction on uh, a grand scale, had given me the nickname The Angel of Death. <laughs> so, apparently The Angel of Death has a soft spot for bunnies. Yeah. So, go figure. Well, I mean, there's, all, there's the whole, um, you read the Discworld books? No, no, I can't say that I
0: do. So there's there's Death, who's, you know, a guy in a cloak with a skeleton and a scythe and everything. And there's also the Death of Rats, and it's a little rat in a little rat-sized cloak. <laughs> and, and whenever death speaks, he's always in capitals. And whenever um, the death of rat speaks, he only says squeak, but the squeaks are in capitals. That's so there might monster. be some sort of, like, a death of bunnies thing where you could... The bunny of death? Exactly, the bunny of death, Wasn't yeah. that
1: the Monty Python thing? You know, look was, at the bones! Look at the look at that teeth! Uh, was that... I don't remember. Did, did that thing have a title? Was oh, it the bunny of death? It, it was, like, the dread uh, monster of something or whatever. Yeah. But, yeah, so I feel like that can... You know, I mean, bunnies... They can, be, they can be symbols of, so yeah, so I, of d- death, I'm too. I'm trying to think of, do I collect anything else? I'm pretty sure that, that that's probably it. I used to collect rocks as a kid, but I gave up on that. I collect booze, but I can't really be said to collect it because I drink it. You're really just renting it, yeah. I'm really just borrowing it. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, so that's not really collecting. Yeah, yeah bunnies, though. I, I have so much bunny merchandise. Like, if you were... Like, the thing is... My wife sort of keeps it under control. She makes sure that That's nothing true. gets quite too tacky, too large, whatever. <laughs> she picks out a lot of it for me. Like I've got like a little bunny ink stamp. Like when I autograph books for people, to prove that it's authentic <laughs> now I, I stamp a bunny on it. Um you know, I got stuff like that. I got uh, she bought me these little forms where you you hard boil an egg, and you put it in, you press this thing, and it comes out overnight in the fridge. It shapes it into a little bunny, so wow. you can have a bunny-shaped egg. That's pretty it, incredible. It's yeah. bizarre. It's very bizarre. Um, so, uh, But the thing is, like, if you were to step into my living room, it's not immediately apparent, uh-huh. but if you really start to look around and pay attention, <laughs> you realize that there's no direction you can look in in the room where there isn't a bunny somewhere in line of sight. If you just know where to look for it, like on the shelves, tucked in with the books. So it probably seems a little odd that the Angel of Death would have a soft spot for bunnies, but you know, maybe there's like a little bunny with a side that follows me around and he's the bunny of death. And
0: That might even be kind of like a children's series, but like a grim children's series. Sure, you know, kind of sure. getting them used to death, but it's a cute thing.
1: Yes, yes. The bunny of death will come for you, and he'll, you know, bring you candy and then kill you and claim your soul. Exactly. And usher you into the darkness. Yeah.
0: And then there's the whole Easter tie-in, which is oh, which is well, pure that's money.
1: fabulous. That's just money in the bank. Exactly. That's happen. bunny in the bank. Bunny in the bank, baby.
0: <laughs> All right. So, um, <clears throat> your phone rings. It's Robert Hollywood, the vice president of Hollywood, and he wants one suggestion to make the entertainment industry better. Fire the development executives. Nice. Okay, that's perfect. I like it. Um, all right, David, now let's digress. Sure. What? What is the first movie you remember seeing, and how, if it affected
1: you, did it do so? Hmm. It probably would have been one of the Pink Panther movies, and I probably saw it. edited for television on a black and white TV. Okay. But I remember being fascinated by it. I might have been six or seven. And if my parents were to be believed, I had a knack even at that age. I could watch a movie once late at night, sequestered in my room with the little black and white TV and at breakfast the next morning I could come out and regale them with the entire plot of the movie start to finish. And I often insisted upon doing so uh, in between gulping mouthfuls of oatmeal of or, or whatever So apparently my brain was wired for story Right from the very beginning Yeah But I remember appreciating the absurdity of it And uh, I guess I've always had a love of the absurd uh, Ever since then That may have led to my love of things like uh, Monty Python and Definitely. British comedy Things like that It's
0: a solid base Um... What is the last dream you remember having?
1: The problem is they they don't stick very well for me anymore. Um, I think... Well, let's see. uh, What's the one I had last night? I think I remember my wife was teaching. Okay. Which is strange because that's not her job. She works in the medical profession. She works in therapy, Mm -hmm. uh, helping brain injury patients. But in this scenario, for some reason, she was in a classroom setting... She was teaching, students were preparing for a test, and for some reason I was there and I was part of the class. I don't remember the subject. I do remember that in classic anxiety dream fashion, I felt unprepared for the test. And this was just last night, so this... uh, has very little context. It's not the most visual or crazy dream. I have had some that were very strange and visual. Mm -hmm. I remember the earliest dream that I still remember from my childhood was peculiar. I remember as a child dreaming of falling off of a very large bridge at night Okay. a bridge I had never seen before but which looks strangely in my memory like the 59th Street Bridge Mm -hmm. even though I'd never been to New York and at night plummeting from this bridge toward a dark river and just before I would have plunged into the river I land with one foot on a floating brick and I ride the brick away with my arms out and one foot raised behind me (laughs) riding on one foot on a floating brick and I ride down the river at night that was the. Awesome. Fir- that is the first <laughs> dream I remember from my childhood, and nice. it has stuck with me my whole life.
0: Understandably so. <laughs> um, what is the worst job you've ever had?
1: It's a tie between the first job, mm-hmm. which was, or first, you know, sort of salary job on the books, which was I was working at a summer camp uh, in Massachusetts. My job was washer of pots and pans in the camp kitchen. It was hot, sweaty work. It uh, was kind of disgusting. There was lots of mess, lots of grime. Mm -hmm. I had to live at the camp, which was also a pretty isolating and miserable experience. Uh, A few of my friends had gotten jobs there as counselors. The catch was they didn't get paid, but they got to be out in the sun all day doing stuff like canoeing, crafts, working with the kids, whatever. Mm -hmm. I got paid. But I spent my days in the kitchen doing prep work, washing, mopping, yeah. and it was pretty miserable work, and uh, I was pretty miserable. and I, I, My misery quickly manifested as insubordination and uh, getting into all kinds of trouble, and I was fired within about three weeks. Mm-hmm. I went from that to my next job, which is also a tie for worst job. I got a job at the local supermarket, and at first, they started me out as, like, you know, the uh, the guy who bags your groceries at oh, the yeah. checkout. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they quickly figured out that I don't have the people skills for that. <laughs> so I got transferred into the bottle sorting cellar, the recycling sorting uh, cellar, underneath the supermarket. Okay. And what would happen is, at that time, people would bring in their empties, their cans, their bottles, whatever. They would all just go willy-nilly into these plastic bins, and when the bins were full somebody would push a bin down this rolling conveyor belt, and it would come down at the conveyor belt at about a 15-degree angle and then go through this hard turn and come rolling down these tracks. But it never worked out that way. They would come sliding down and then round that turn and then bounce off the back wall and then fall off the track, and then everything would go everywhere. Mm -hmm. And they would be dumping these things down this stupid uh, track all day while I was at school, and I would come in at like 3 or 4 in the afternoon to work, and the floor would be like knee-deep in uh, cans and bottles, broken glass, and I'd have to sort through all of it with bare hands, uh, dig my way out, dig my way to the front just to get through it all. And then uh, the place stank because, you know, it was uh beer cans that had remnants of beer left in it uh soda cans well no not so much milk they weren't recycling milk containers at that time it was all soda beer stuff like that but there was like that stink of like you know three day old beer old soda it was particularly bad in the summer because sometimes the soda cans had ants in them (laughs) and they have to rinse them out before they can go into the recycling bins yeah Uh, Because you can't have an ant infestation start inside a supermarket. Of course. And uh, it was just, it was hot down there. It was poorly ventilated, poorly lit. It was uh, cramped quarters, like working in a submarine. Uh, I was always, you know, just on the verge of catching up when another bin would come down and dump all its stuff all over the place. And uh, I've still got a scar which you can sort of see, the it's faded, but it's mm-hmm. like this T-shaped thing on my thumb right here. Yeah. I got that when I was reaching into a bin at one point. I was 16 years old, and a broken bottle that I didn't see basically gouged into my thumb and, and tore open this T-shaped uh, wound on my thumb. And blood just sheeted down my hand, and I had to go upstairs and get it washed out with uh, hydrogen peroxide, and they put a bandage on it, and then they told me to go back to work. Nice. And there was no workman's <laughs> comp, and I, I really hated that, and at some point I just got fed up, and uh, I walked upstairs, and I tossed in my apron, and I said... Uh, th- the breaking point was, at some point they were doing construction, I guess, in the parking lot, mm-hmm. and they ended up digging like some sort of ditch, I guess, for pipes and sewage, and they were laying some new electrical lines, whatever, but they had dug this huge ditch along the perimeter of the building... And to get into the cellar, I had to go in through a side entrance, so I had to leap over this ditch to get to the door, to go to the bottle cellar. And for me, that was the last straw. I went upstairs, tossed in my apron, I said, you know what? No job is worth this. I quit. Excellent. Um, what is your zombie apocalypse escape plan? Who would you want with you and why? I don't really have an escape plan. I figure probably suicide is probably just the best bet. <laughs> I'm old, I'm slow, I can't really run very much anymore. I don't have the stamina for it. Uh, you know, maybe I'll just drink myself to death. Uh, you know, maybe I'll stock up on a bottle of Uzo and just light myself on fire. You never know. That's a plan. Hey, it's, it's. you know. I mean, if it was possible to own firearms more easily in New York City, I might keep a shotgun around just to blow my brains out in the event of a zombie apocalypse. Sure. But it's really a pain in the ass to get a, a license for possession in the city so really it's just not worth it maybe when I move and buy a house I'll you know, move somewhere way out in the country I'll stock up on shotgun shells and antibiotics and try to limit my visits into town sure. that kind of thing become a, you know, one of those real recluse writers Spider mm-hmm. Jerusalem yeah, is what I'm picturing yeah Spider yeah. Jerusalem up on the mountaintop <laughs> I'll shave my head I'll get a weird tattoo on the back of my skull I'll sit yeah. up there with a pump action and, uh, you know a, cock- you a huge beard yeah you. well I, I would try to grow a beard you know I mean it I always end up ripping it out because I got OCD, which mm-hmm. is kind of a pain in the ass. Understandable. But uh, yeah, it's up on the mountain with uh, you know, my cocktail of uh, scotch and antibiotics, <laughs> which I'm sure is a great mix. Yeah. And uh, my shotgun just uh, waiting for the end of the world, which you know, is pretty much how I've always figured it would end anyway. So. That's it. Hey, you know, if it works, a plan's a plan. But who um, would I want with me if, yeah. if I had a choice? Yes. First of all, my buddy Glenn. okay Glenn is a maniac driver who I think could get us out of any situation as long as he had a working vehicle. Excellent. Uh, and although uh, this next guy's in Kansas City, if it was possible to have him around, I would want my buddy Dayton because I'm pretty sure Dayton can kill anything that gets within his reach. Nice. Uh, and that's a solid team. Yeah, he was like you know 11 years in the Marine Corps. He was a drill instructor at one point, uh, good with firearms, good with his hands, good with weapons. So I would want, you know, good with demolitions. I would want Dayton there to kill things, Glenn to drive us out of situations. Um, And you could just tell stories, keep them entertained. Right, you know, or (laughs) I I could be the cook. and And bring my wife as the medic. Excellent. Okay, that's solid. Solid solid, solid plan, solid plan. That's a a short story right there. Um, Tell me a joke. I mean, I've got some really old ones that go way, way back. Sure. I mean, like, yeah, yeah. I mean it would be, be like Catskills vaudeville crap. Dated, yeah. All right, so you got the plane flying through the air, and aboard the plane, you got a Boy Scout, you got a politician, uh, you got a priest, mm-hmm. oh, and uh, some TV personality. And at some point, the plane starts to go into distress. You hear the engines sputtering. The pilots, they come around in the back. They go, we're going down, we're going down. They grab their parachutes, and out the door they go. The TV personality looks around and says, somebody's got a report on this. The public has to know. He grabs a parachute, out the door. Dive is steepening, and now you're down to the Boy Scout, the priest, and the politician. The politician says, I've got to have a congressional hearing about this. <laughs> I'm going, I'm taking one of these parachutes. He grabs a parachute, he's out the door. You're down to the priest and the boy scout. The priest says, "My son, I've had a long life. You are young. You have many years ahead of you. Take the last parachute and God bless you, my son." Boy scout says, "Father, we can both go." The politician grabbed my backpack. <laughs> nice. So, there you go. <sighs> Everybody loves to make fun of the politician. Oh, absolutely. You thought I was going for a joke with the priest, didn't you? Since it was an older joke, I was I was wondering you weren't sure. like
0: that's the thing. Like I I don't remember Older jokes really being in for the whole molestation punch. Right, line.
1: right. So That's more of a classic. That was back from the age when the priest actually still commanded respect. Exactly, yeah. So.
0: Today's version would be just... Very different. Line. Exactly. Um, okay, so, uh, David, we've, we've just kind of been generally floating in the ether. Now, let's get specific. Let's get specific. So, first off, um, would you, do you, did you prefer Mac Daddy... Or Daddy Mac and why? In a follow-up, during the whole Everyone Likes crisscross in the 90s, how did that affect you?
1: It didn't come up very often. Most of my friends weren't much into rap or hip-hop or anything like that. Okay. Um, I had a very square group of friends through the 90s. There were some people when I started at uh, Sci-Fi Channel around 2000 who were younger and hipper and had broader musical tastes. I believe the nickname that I picked up uh, during my early years at the Sci-Fi channel Was Mac Daddy Mac, Mac Daddy, Daddy w- was the most common Almost nobody used Daddy Mac It was almost always uh, Mac Daddy And in fact it was almost always uh, My buddy Dan or my friend Rachel Were the two most likely to call me Mac Daddy And also Alyssa Alyssa at Sci-Fi used to call me Mac Daddy for I thought you time. meant that
0: they would call you Alyssa No, no, They'd no, call no. me Mac Daddy and Alyssa No, 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 no.
1: <laughs> I was trying to remember who were the ones most likely to use nicknames A lot of people just called me Mac Gotcha. But those three were the ones most likely to call me Mac Daddy. Gotcha. Um,
0: OK, now, first things first, and I apologize in advance because you've probably been asked this question a 100,000 times. You just got to get sure. it out of the way. Um, taking into consideration both you know, the old era and the new era, who is your all-time favorite star search host?
1: I guess you've got to go with Ed McMahon. You have to. yeah, Really, I mean, uh, he, he's classic, he's the face of it. I mm-hmm. mean, when I think of Star Search, I think of, you know, Bad 70s Schmaltz, I yeah. think of Glitz, I think of Ed McMahon, you know, doing his intro of the, whoever's going to be up next and thinking to myself, wait a minute, is this a Publisher's Clearinghouse commercial or am yeah. I actually back at the show? Yeah. Uh, and I remember sort of, you know, thriving on that sense of confusion. So, yeah, I guess I, w- I would go with Ed McMahon.
0: Excellent. Because also, I mean, on top of that, Arsenio Hall is just uh, fucking awful. Yeah, yeah, he is. He's
1: an abomination.
0: So, um, now that we're actually um, moving on to the, the Star Trek section. Oh, dear. I apologize in advance for that as well. Well, it had to happen sooner or later. It did, but, you know, I'm, I'm going to try and dodge some of the... Uh, We've had we, a pretty good run-up till now. Exactly. Now It's all downhill. Any, any listeners, just turn it off now. Or actually, is Pro Tools going to turn it off now? No, no, okay, no Pro Tools has so, not canceled Pro Tools our is interested yet. yet. It's still um, with us. So, was Star Trek the only universe you were into as far as creating additional content and expanding it? Or was there anything else that you maybe wrote, just kept for yourself, that you wanted to continue in and, and begin?
1: Well, I uh, never really did what you would consider fanfic, where mm-hmm. I would write stuff for myself. My chief interest in writing for Star Trek was always professional. I always wanted to give something back to the franchise that I had loved as a kid and grew up uh you know grew up watching in, in syndicated reruns mm-hmm. but I was interested in other shows Star Trek wasn't my only fandom as a kid I also watched Space 1999, Buck Rogers, 6 Million Dollar Man, Bionic Woman when I got older you know of course there was X-Files, Buffy oh, yeah. the Vampire Slayer I was interested in all of these shows and would have been happy to do Tie-in novels for just about any of these properties As I did for Star Trek But I wasn't offered those opportunities mm-hmm. But through a combination of good luck And who I happened to meet, connections, that sort of thing I did have the good fortune to get my door, my foot in the door at Star Trek mm-hmm. So that's pretty much uh, what I pursued But I've also written uh, a novel for the series The 4400 okay. Which was on yeah. USA Network Um I also wrote a Wolverine novel called Road of Bones, which I'm very proud of. Uh, It apparently didn't sell as well as some of my Star Trek stuff. It's one of my less-read books, which saddens me a little bit because it's one that I'm really proud of. Uh, It's one that I think addresses a lot of real-world themes. Some reviewers on Amazon, of course, have taken issue with that. They feel like if they're going to read a superhero novel, they want escapism, they don't want to be confronted with harsh realities and grim truths about the world that we live in. And I can understand that criticism. I think it's fair. Certain people have expectations uh, of what they want to get out of these stories. And that's cool. I don't fault them for that. Mm -hmm. Um, I wanted to do something different. I wanted to do a novel that read like a James Bond novel in its action sequences, but at the same time was also about something very real, which is the first world's neglect of the third world and the way in which we sometimes exploit the third world even as we purport to help them mm-hmm. and i did that partially by creating a fictionalized version of the crisis in the sudan which at that time was exploding and all over the news um with things like the uh in real life the Jean were you know basically running roughshod over sudan creating child soldiers uh rape murder mm-hmm. genocide and i created a fictionalized country and a group called the tanjawar which were you know fulfilling the same role as the janjaweed and i eventually have wolverine in this scenario as he gets to the end of you know the superhero type of segment of the story comes face to face with this other storyline that's been happening in parallel throughout mm-hmm. the book and he realizes that in the face of true human suffering and human misery There's nothing that he, as a man with claws and a healing factor, can do for these people. That there is a limit to how much good he can accomplish in the world with just simple violence. That for every villain he cuts down, two more seem to take their place. And sometimes they're more subtle villains uh, than the kind that he comes to fight. So it's really about a journey inward for Wolverine. It's about him reaching the limits of who he is as a character and what he can do in the world. Um, and maybe that got a little philosophical for some people but I thought that it was true to some of the more introspective work that had been done with the character in recent years mm-hmm. and I, I thought it was true to the character um, in any event so I, I loved writing that one I'd love to do more stuff like that I would love to be able to do a Star Wars novel someday I think that'd be a fun universe to play in I'd have to do a little homework and get caught up but I think it could be you know a real hoot Yeah. but uh I mean, So yeah, there's plenty of other fictional franchises I wouldn't mind working in But I don't work in them just for fun I don't write fanfic I try to make a rule of not writing something Unless I have a reasonable expectation of being paid for it Definitely Uh, The only time I will write on spec Is when I'm creating something of my own um, You know, as that gamble That lottery ticket to put out there I've had one original novel novel published so far That was The Calling Published in 2009 Mm -hmm. Uh... Could have done better. Uh, it didn't become quite the runaway hit that I hoped it might be. Uh, so now I've moved on to a, a new story and a new concept that uh, I'm excited about. I've been developing it and researching it for the last few months. It's now with my agent awaiting her feedback, and I'm waiting for her to tell me A, Whether she thinks it has commercial viability, Mm -hmm. and B, if it does, I'm waiting for whatever feedback she can give me to make it the best story it can be. Definitely. Once we get the outline sort of worked out and I know that she's on board with it, I'll get a few chapters together. We have a few editors who I'm friendly with uh, who are willing to look at a few chapters on an outline. Um, A lot of publishers these days won't do that. A lot of publishers now are demanding that authors particularly authors they haven't worked with before yeah execute the full manuscript mm-hmm. they don't want to see chapters in an outline they want to see that you've actually got the whole manuscript done uh and that's a change from the way things used to work say 10 15 years ago yeah um but every now and then depending on specific circumstances like in this circumstance there's an editor with whom i have worked before who has you know earned some clout through some recent successes and because I've recently hit the New York Times list, yeah. when you put all those factors together, we, you know, in this one case might be able to skirt the full manuscript rule and evaluate it based on a proposal with some chapters. Yeah, definitely. Well, and you've I, reached that level. I mean, it's, you know... But, yeah. but there are authors who are farther along, who have been far more successful than me, who are still held to the full manuscript standard when they're launching new series, hmm. proposing new concepts, um, it's really just a case-by-case case basis. I mean, yeah. I, I might get that leeway, that leverage with this one editor in this one case, but I would not be granted that leeway with another editor at another house. Sure. So this might be a case where I would you know, make a preliminary pitch to see if this editor wants to uh, snap this up while it's still in a larval stage where it could be molded and shaped by editorial directive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then if that doesn't happen, then the onus falls upon me to finish the manuscript and then revise it with feedback from my agent and then let her take it out into the world to what hopefully will be receptive eyes. Sure. Well, I
0: mean, you know, new things are always scary to people.
1: And it is, and it's yeah. it's a scary thing, and I, at this point I'm so close to it, I don't know if it works anymore. That's always which always is why I thank God that my agent is willing to read it and offer unbiased critical feedback like she's not just a yes person like she'll actually say you've got some good ideas here but i think this needs work i think it falls short here i think this part doesn't work as well as you think it does yeah like she's able to be very honest and very direct but she's not mean about it she's very professional and she's very insightful and incisive so i'm really looking forward to hearing what she has to say excellent cool
0: so going back to the um writing for Star Trek, the the expanding the universe. Mm-hmm. Um, are there rules? There are there any s- storylines that you've
1: been afraid to tell maybe that are too weird, maybe too irreversible? Well, it's not so much about irreversibility. There are rules to a certain extent whenever you work in what is called licensed fiction, which is a okay. case where someone else owns the copyright when you're playing with the toys in someone else's sandbox gotcha that would be the case of Star Trek Star Wars anything like you know superhero books Superman anything like that Mm -hmm. um the rules however are not so much set in stone they apply more when you're a beginning writer who doesn't have a track record with the publisher with the editor with the licensor Often the rules are cited, you know, because there are, let's say, submission guidelines that are posted mm-hmm. on the websites. And they tend to be very strict. They say, you know, no stories that involve previously unknown or unestablished relatives of the main characters. Don't kill off any of the main characters. <laughs> don't resurrect anybody who's dead in canon. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't blow up the ship. Don't blow up the station. <laughs> don't irrevocably alter the status quo of the fictional universe. Yada gotcha. yada. Yad, yad, yad. The thing is, these submission guidelines are not intended to apply universally at all times to all writers working on the books. Okay, They apply to people who are essentially writing a spec manuscript for the first time and attempting to introduce themselves to the editors and try to essentially get their attention and say, please consider me for one of your upcoming publishing slots in your schedule. Yeah. Part of the reason these guidelines exist is so that new writers can prove that they are capable of following the rules, mm-hmm. telling a story within strict parameters, okay. um, and basically not wasting an editor's time. Because if you can't follow instructions at that level, then you're probably not going to be someone the editor wants to deal with down the line. Yeah. Um, and contrary to what a lot of uh, fans sometimes think, these strict parameters don't really hinder creativity in many ways they are a boost to it because you have to figure out what makes a story work when you can't just kill somebody yeah um because that is kind of cheap to be like oh i need i need pathos
0: um let's bring up someone who never had a wife before bring up their wife and kill them yeah that's
1: dark exactly yeah or stuff like or stuff like killing off kirk i'll kill kirk that'll be edgy yeah um you know the question there isn't about you know life or death for a main character it's about teaching new writers that when you're writing a Star Trek story, what you need to find is the moral or ethical quandary that our characters must contend with. They must have a situation where there are no good or easy answers, mm-hmm. and then how do they explore uh, you know, the, the consequences of, of their actions and of their potential uh, resolutions. Yeah. So it, it's about learning how a Star Trek story works in the case of those guidelines. Once you are in the door and you've got some books under your belt and you start to get established and you've proved that you can uh, assimilate editorial and uh, licensor feedback, that you understand the rules, that you don't just willy-nilly do stuff that drives the licensing office up a wall, uh, then you start to get a little more leeway. You can pitch stories that are a bit more outre. You can start to upend the status quo as long as it's done in concert with, say, either editorial directive or at least their permission, like you can say, you know, we want to do this, that the other thing, uh, but it's going to mean blowing up the Deep Space Nine station at the conclusion of the story as my friend David R. George did uh, in one of his recent novels it was a bold move blowing up Deep Space Nine in a Deep Space Nine novel, Yeah, but he did it and he got away with it, and he pulled it off, and he made it work. The thing is, if he didn't already have a successful track record yeah. as you know a respected Star Trek author with several books under his belt, New York Times bestseller status, he probably would not have gotten away with a pitch like that. But yeah. he had earned the trust and the respect of everybody involved that they let him do something like that. Just as after I had done like seven or eight books, mm-hmm. had hit the USA Today list, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, I had the sales numbers they were willing to trust me when I pitched you know, the idea for my Destiny trilogy, which was we are going to do the Alpha and Omega of the Borg. We're going to end the Borg for good in the Star Trek literary universe. This yeah. is going to be the last outing. After this they're done. They don't exist anymore. And the only note that came back from the licensing executive to my proposal, once we had hammered it out with the editors, was, mm-hmm. are you sure you want to do this? <laughs> it was. It was not meant as you can't, it was are you sure? Yeah, because this is su- this is big. Are yeah. you sure you want to do this? It was a question both for me and for the editors, and we unanimously said yes. We think story wise, this is the best way to go. This is the decision we stand by, and yeah. we were told, "Go with God. Good luck." We look forward to seeing the manuscript, and you know that turned out to go really well. Those books ha- continue to sell really well. They sold well enough that we put out a. Uh, a new omnibus edition of all three books in under one cover, yeah. which I was allowed to re-edit and repolish and, and nice. improve a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and that continues to sell like gangbusters. And then that led to my Cold Equations trilogy, which recently came out, which hit the Times list, two of the three books, yeah. became New York Times bestsellers. And uh, I pitched you know, what would have normally been an idea that would have been shot down in a heartbeat. I said, yeah. spoiler alert for those of you who haven't read Cold Equations, I said, I'm going to bring back Data, and I have an idea for how to do it that I, you know, it had been done to one degree or another, uh, or hinted at in uh, some of the comic books by the guys who did the recent movies. Yes. Orsi Kurtzman, uh, their pet screenwriter who's doing the comic books for them. They had just sort of had like a throwaway couple of panels showing Data as a captain of the Enterprise in the alternate future or whatever yeah. that sends back Prime Spock or Spock Prime or whatever. And their explanation for how Data came back, I didn't particularly agree with. And because the comic books aren't canon any more than the books are, the books are not required to respect the comic book storyline. If it wasn't yeah. shown on a screen, live action, then it doesn't count. We don't have to worry about it. So I basically pitched to the editors. I said, I have a different interpretation for how Data comes back. And I said, well, here's the story, and here's how I'm going to set it up. Here's how I'm going to pay it off. And they looked at it and they said, OK, we see what you're doing, we like this, you're good to go, go for it. Excellent. So it's not that there are hard and fast rules. It's that before you are allowed to break the rules, you first must show that you can follow them sure. and that you can follow instructions and you must earn trust. But once you have earned trust uh, with the editors over a period of time, once you have a track record, you get more leeway and you are able to break the rules or in some cases rewrite the rules.
0: Yeah. Okay,
1: so leading right into that, um,
0: if you chose to end the Star Trek universe... Like I, almost, I almost was asked to do so, believe it or not. So, okay, well, I, I, maybe you can't answer this then. If someone said, okay, end the Star Trek universe, how would you do it?
1: Well, when, believe it or not, when, at a point when uh, Simon & Schuster, the current publisher of the Star Trek books... Mm-hmm thought they were going to uh, lose or give up the publishing license and that their Star Trek publishing program was going to end, I was approached to do a trilogy. Originally, the Cold Equations trilogy was going to be a, uh, a fond farewell to 30-some-odd years of Star Trek fiction at Simon's History. It was going to be the you know, wrap it all up and turn off the lights on the universe on my way out. Okay. The idea wasn't that I was going to destroy the universe or necessarily imply that it all comes crashing down. What I would want to do is create a story that gives a sense of closure to fans so that they can feel like the story has had a meaningful arc from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. And the way I originally approached that, the first proposal for what became Cold Equations, which was, this proposal obviously was thrown out when they renewed the license and said, oh, we're not doing that, we need something completely different now. <laughs> My original idea was to do an entire trilogy on the theme of family, with three different books, exploring three different uh, takes on this. What the first book was always going to be about bringing back Data, and mm-hmm. it was always gonna basically be what became the first book of the trilogy, Persistence of Memory. Mm-hmm. And it was about the father-son relationship between Nuni and Sung and Data, and it's about what won't a father do for you know to save his son okay how far will a father go is there nothing that a father won't do to save or bring back his son sure and then the second book was originally going to be all about Worf and his son how they've just taken completely you know divergent trajectories in life yeah and how Worf basically tried to do everything he could and seemed to run away from fatherhood throughout alexander's youth and then only After Alexander has grown, does, you know, War suddenly take an interest in his life, but by then it's too late. It was going to be a cats in the cradle kind of story, where essentially the son is just like the father, now the son wants nothing to do with the father. Uh, And it was going to be about, you know, you've got these two very proud characters, one from a Klingon tradition, one from a more human tradition, both coming from places where they've wounded each other, you know, emotionally, Mm -hmm. both trying to be stoic or, or trying to be proud, how do they reconcile this? And then I was going to basically create an action story framework that sort of would thrust the two of them together and force them to survive together while also reconciling a lifetime of hurts between father and son. Mm -hmm. And then what I was going to do for the last story was one with uh, essentially the death of Picard, where it was going to be Picard as an old man has finally succumbed to what we saw in the uh, TNG series finale, Euromotic Syndrome, uh, even in this alternate timeline, it has manifested. And it's basically like you know the Star Trek version of Alzheimer's. Yeah. And there's nothing much they can do for him. His mind is starting to go. But what we discover is that Eremotic Syndrome is not just some weird viral disease. that It's actually uh, a neurochronological disease. Essentially, the brain becomes disjointed in time. Okay. and that because he's now you know he seems like he's all over the place he seems demented, he seems like he's not able to focus, it's because he's essentially having uh, a Slaughterhouse 5 experience inside his own head, where he's moving back and forth through his own life, yeah. in his own head in his own perceptions, and reliving moments of his life, moments of his past and he finds that the moments he's being drawn back to, there was an episode, I think it was the season season 5? finale season six opener where they have the Davidians who were like traveling into San Francisco in the past and sucking out people's life energy and they are the Ophidians That's you know, they're a little Ophidian, they're little snake mm-hmm. and uh, they were sucking out like you know terrorizing people and drinking their fear and then Picard you know nukes their little cave or whatever. The thing is how can a whole species be these five people who live in a in cave? A cave yeah. There's probably more of them, and they're probably pretty pissed at Picard at this point. Understandably. So, so. What, ha- what happens is that Picard finds out, as he's you know near the end of his life and has become disjointed in time, that the Davidians are responsible for a lot of these seemingly random or arbitrary, horrible things that have happened to him and his family through the years. Like, you know, uh, the death of Jack Crusher, they killed his best friend. They set it up to happen. Uh, The fire that killed his uh, brother and and nephew uh, at the beginning of Generations, Mm -hmm. they did that. They've basically been trying to wound him and, and inflict harm on him emotionally through his life. And now they're coming to claim him because they want to basically reduce him to a moment of fear and despair, so that they can then claim him. Right. So they're coming for him, and essentially he has to, despite his seemingly demented state, get the band back together. He has to get his (laughs) old friends, his old Enterprise family, Mm -hmm. to trust him one last time and help him eliminate the Davidian threat in the past and the present and the future for good. He's got to basically do the sort of time spanning thing. He's going to have to get everybody back on board to help him. Yeah. And the idea is they pull it off, but to make it work, um, it requires this moment of sacrifice where he's going to have to go down, he's going to have to be exposed to danger for a critical period of time. They pull it off, they eliminate the Davidians, but in the course of it, Picard essentially takes a fatal you know, level of whatever. Yeah. And they bring him back up, and the idea was to end the series sort of like the, the family gathered around the patriarch. Yeah, yeah so that essentially we write the death of picard surrounded by his family nice. and you bring back wesley you bring back you know uh wharf um some like that and because he's temporarily disjointed in time he's like you know in this present moment with his family in the moment he's also with tasha yar in the past picard dies with his family that is so nice Wow, but they changed the direction, and you know they kept the license, and they said, "Well, we don't want you to burn down the Star Trek universe." And I'm like, "Okay, so you know, file that one, put that over there, yeah, yeah <laughs> put that over there. I'll probably never get to bring it out. Uh, they'll probably never. Get, it doesn't really fit with the direction that they're going now. And, uh, but I mean, when I was asked, you know, told to consider developing a storyline that would bring Star Trek to a close. Mm-hmm. For readers and feel like you know this is the closure. This is the end of the story. I thought, what else could be the end of the story but the death of the patriarch? Sure, yeah. And then it all becomes about family. So you do a whole trilogy on the theme of family. I was really excited about it, but then the assumptions changed and uh, the needs of the publisher changed. So sure, that story went away. That is still pretty uh, an amazing story. To it would have just it would have been a blast. There. It would have been a blast, but. Again, it's just it's the kind of thing where now that they are continuing for the foreseeable future, yeah. um, a story like that would really just confuse the readers and it would just not serve their needs. Sure. All right, Bum so bummed that I didn't get to write it, though. Yeah, but I mean, well, technically, you know, you have it. So I have it. I have the outline. I mean, the whole story was outlined. It's so all now there. Now it's here for the future when yeah. people find it.
0: Sure. When we actually get to Star Trek and they're like... It would have been a beautiful thing. Yeah. Um, so this is, so that was the Star Trek segment, which I think went pretty well. Sure. And, uh, finally, um, there's one last section. Okay. I have a list here of words that I've made up. I'd like you to scroll through, pick one, and then define it for me. Define
1: me. (laughs) Oh, damn, these are, uh, let's see here. I'm gonna go with Qualch. Qualch, okay, what is Qualch? It is a combination of quashing something uh-huh. and squelching something at the same time. It is a form of aggressively stifling discussion, stifling dissent, or otherwise silencing a critic. When you qualch somebody, you shut them down. Okay. Say that does it, I'm qualching you, mister. You're qualched. <laughs> I like it. Wonderful. Well thank you so much. My
0: pleasure. I think that's the, that is the first official writer's definition. Of uh, of a word. I'm there on There you go. Alright well David thank I almost you so wish much. I'd made it up. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it looks like Pro Tools has been nice to us and it looks like we finished it. So uh, thank, you, thank you, Pro you Tools. So this has been wonderful. Yes, and thank oh. you, Pro Tools. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Ether Bunny. You cruel, cruel mistress. Degressive obscenity. Shit, what was I talking about? I remember just a moment ago I was talking about something And then I forgot what I was talking about Because I was distracted by the guy who did the thing Uh,
1: Degressive obscenity Shit, what was I talking about?